Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined during the Middle East swing by our Middle East and North Africa correspondent, Reem Abu Lail, who's coming to us from Abu Dhabi this week. Reem, hello. Nice to see you. Hi, Benjamin. Very nice to see you, too. The tours were on either side of you, I guess, uh, this week uh, in Doha for the men and in Dubai for the women's event there. Let's start with the women, I think. Um, we're recording this just shortly after the final, which Garbini Muguruza won for her first title in nearly two years, uh, beating surprise finalist Barbara Krejcikova in the final. Six and three was the final score there. Muguruza has been a player who has been sort of close, but not quite there for a while. I mean, this is sort of my question to her impressed, but like, I'm not sure how much a title necessarily means because I think she, her level has been, her quality has been pretty consistently up there. And so it's not like we thought she was incapable of winning a title, but what do you, what do you think that Muguruza takes from, from this title? And I guess from sort of how she started her, her year overall, which started very strong making the final of that warm up event in Melbourne, then making the uh, quarters of, or no, fourth round, fourth round, quarters, quarters of the, uh, is that right? Getting confused now. Well, no, fourth round of the Australian Open, say, having match points against uh, Nami Osaka. Oh, yeah. yeah. What do you make of, of where Garby sort of fits in this very, maybe still confused WTA ladder? Is it clarifying? What, what do you make of any of that? I think it matters to her so much because if you saw the reactions after all her wins this week and then finally when she got, when she, when she won the title today, it, it was clear, like, even in her speech, her first line was, like, I've lost so many finals in a row. She's lost her last three finals before this one. She's like, I lost many finals in a row, and it's, it feels really good to finally get this one. So I think that, yes, she has been feeling really good about her game, and she said that in Australia after losing to Naomi because she was like, I'm really excited just because of where my form is at and how I feel about my game. So she took that loss in a good way, and you can see that. Uh, but still, like you, for someone who's won two slams and was world number one and stuff and then struggled with consistency, this must mean, like the consistency on its own means a lot to her. But I think also finally getting a trophy, because you you can tell that sometimes it can become a bit of a complex, you know, for her, three finals in a row, losing three finals in a row is a lot. Um also, the fact that she's playing so well, but because of this bizarre ranking half free situation, she's 16 in the world. So it's it's bizarre because Garbini, I think, in the race right now is number two after this win. Mm-hmm. She's just, and that's such a huge difference between the race and the actual ranking. Two and 16, that's a big gap, you know. So um, I think her head is in the right place in terms of like she says, I'm not looking at rankings. I'm focused on my form and all of that. But you could tell that it really meant so much to her when she got that title. I think the thing that I think jumped out at me and look in sort of the evaluating of where Garbinia sits on the tour is that she is through, you know, mid-March now. She's the overall tour leader in most match wins, which I feel like it's not a very sort of typical Muguruza type stat. She's not somebody who really, for most of her career, has been like consistent week in, week out, racking up the sort of wins, being sort of a, a workhorse. You know, she was always someone who's pretty on, hot and cold 
on and off. And so that, that even to me more than the trophy, I understand the trophy being a monkey on her back that she wanted to get rid of, but even more than the trophy as an outsider, just evaluating her, that's, I think what jumps out is like, okay, this is something different. This is something that I think is a, is a real testament to consistency. And granted she's done it all so far on hard court. Um, so it hasn't been too many different and, and relatively similar conditions in Australia and the Middle East. It's not too much variety necessarily, but I do, although some of the court, you were going to say something there. Yeah, I, th- I would disagree a bit about the conditions thing because the, the difference from Doha to Dubai is quite big in terms of conditions. Mm. And all the players were saying that the ball flies way more in Dubai. They also play with different balls. I spoke to Sabalanka about that because she also won in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and and she won Doha last year, so she was going for the Middle East Triple Crown this week, but she didn't do it. And uh, and she was saying that every one of those cities is completely different. So I I, I understand that it's still all hard courts. Uh, I think the biggest stat for me, besides Garbini being the match uh, the the tour leader in match wins, she's eighteen four. The average ranking of her opponents through these twenty two matches is forty three. That's pretty high over over all of these matches. And I think one of the... Re- Garbini usually, what she used to say in the past, is that she would struggle to find the motivation in the smaller tournaments. But when you are entering these smaller tournaments and are playing Sabalenka and Barty and this and that, your motivation also has to go up, you know? So I think it's also... That might be a factor of why she's able to step up. Yeah, in her first... You know, she Early in this tournament, third round, she gets to plays Sviantec and beats her very handily. I think that's probably the statement win of her week, more or less. Uh, mm. 11-4 over Sviantec, and then gets for the second week in a row, a tough win over, or a tough match against Sabalenka. 3-6, 6-3, 6-2 this time before getting Mertens in the semis. And then, yeah, Krejcikova's surprise finals, which was kind of a trap match, too, because is playing well, not a player who Muguruza would know much about, really, as an opponent. Uh, she admits she hasn't seen much of her in singles at all, which very few people have. I mean, Krejcikova only broke top 100 for the first time at last year's French Open. So, yeah, I, I'm impressed. And and I, I think Muguruza, you know, not sort of consolidating herself as being a potentially dominant or at least consistently present top fiver has been one of, the, one of the big stories of women's tennis in the last, you know, six, seven years. Like, I, I, I maybe that's a little too long, maybe five years. I've said that before. I remember I put Muguruza on, of course, I did like our top 10 defining players of the decade list uh, for at the end of 2019. I put Muguruza, I think, at number 10, because, but partially to say because I think that she could have done so much more to, like, Muguruza's inability to, like, really back up and become the huge number number one I think she could have been was was very, defi- I think, I think led to a lot of the quote-unquote chaos or upheaval or parody in the rankings. It was because Muguruza wasn't able to really have an iron fist on the tour like I think she can and if she's if she's developing that that fist strength to to iron up her fist uh further I think that could that could really have a, a huge impact because she can play on every surface she is somebody who really you know it can compete with good Naomi which few people can and we saw that in Australia yeah I I, I think she's such a she can be such an incredibly relevant player to put it mildly and I, I hope that she hope that she backs that up and continues to be I agree. I also think that like every time I'm I'm realizing more and more the more she's winning is just the 
the kind of interest that she she can drum up among fans like you can see that fans are actually very invested in Muguruza and also I feel like Muguruza is a very unique player on the tour in the sense of she has her own thing going on mm. off the court Muguruza is a very interesting person we don't always know much about her but like she goes and does like when 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 she trained with the civil guard in her off season last November like go doing cave diving and jumping from helicopters and stuff like that like she 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 had been trying to do that for years apparently just wanting to go and train with the civil guard which is not a typical thing the year before she climbed Kilimanjaro yeah and, she she's I find her very interesting in general and and I really hope that she opens up more and more because I, the interest is there among the fans. Yeah, no, I completely agree and I also think when she was winning her slams in 2016-2017, I think there was some sort of wondering like why she wasn't becoming necessarily a breakout sort of star, quote unquote, like you know, beyond the sport of tennis, which she really at least in America she certainly has not become that. And yeah, more bites of the apple, more chances to do it. I think she can be a, a big sort of transformational figure for women's tennis if everything keeps going her way. And this is still just one title, still just Dubai. But I think everything is really trending in a good direction for Garbinier for sure. Um, other notes, other players uh, you think are worth discussing here from this uh, from this Dubai draw? Krejcikova mentioned briefly. Very nice run for her to make the final. Go ahead. She was, she was great. She didn't drop a set until she lost in the final. She she's been so calm and collected just super composed the whole week she had really good wins honestly uh, over Sakari, Ostapenko uh, Kuznetsova, Teichman Teichman also had a really good week she was fun to watch those were kind of the standout performers for me I was a bit disappointed in the Shviontek Muguruza match I, I mm. kind of wanted more from that match it got interesting in the second set but uh, that was a bit disappointing Potapova had a good week uh, she did well. She took out Keys uh, and Benchich. Yeah. Uh, Coco Goff. Coco Goff, actually, she's kind of flying a bit under the radar compared to the massive fandom that was around her, like, last year and the year before. Yeah. And she's just really fighting. Like, she she had a stretcher. She played seven three-setters in a row, uh, winning six of them. So she's she's fighting really hard. Turned 17 today. It's incredible that she's just still turning 17. Yeah, she's 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 an interesting sort of like altitude right now where she's not um, necessarily generating huge headlines or like winning trophies or making finals, but she's like very steadily building uh, her ranking and had that good run in Adelaide after the Australian Open. And then, yeah, making a quarterfinal here in Dubai with a some wins over Vondrosheva, sort of a contentious match there, a, a third set tiebreak win over... Alexandrova in the first round yeah she's 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 steadily building and um I think it's tough with Coco because like they were all and according I talked about this before maybe I don't know if it was online or not but it was she's at this interesting sort of place where it's because there's a lot of especially in the U.S. a lot of casual fans know her and a lot of media has dipped in to cover her it's this remarkable story it's sort of tough to know like what will be considered success or what will be considered disappointment considering the huge expectations that were placed on her and all the weight of like, wow, she's the next coach, she's the next Serena, she's the next, you know, slam champ it as a teenager. Um, but in any sort of normal calibrated context, what she's doing is still incredible and amazing. And um, I, I hope, I hope that, that can win out for her and that she, and that she doesn't feel pressure to do more too. Mm-hmm. So for me, I mean, Coco is, I, I like that the, at the moment, it's kind of a steady rise. 
So like she she'll be 35 in the world after this uh, tournament, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good rise for her. And then for me, another big standout, uh, so someone I had a standout week was uh, Jessica Pagula. Yeah, again, I am I am super impressed by the fact that Pagula was able to back up that Australian Open run immediately go and make semis in Doha and then make quarters in uh, Dubai. Um, and could have made semis against Mertens too. Yeah, she could have won that match. I mean, she was she was up seven five five two, yeah, and ended up losing that match. She just lost her cool, like she she you could see that she lost the plot completely uh, when she missed that match point, the, those three match points. But uh, I think it's very very impressive. And even she said that she surprised herself. She said that in the back of her her mind, she was thinking about like it's so hard to keep up your results after a big result like that. She was kind of, she didn't expect to do that well. And also she had to play qualies in Doha after Melbourne. So she, she went from playing on Rod Laver to, to playing on an outside court in in qualies in Doha. So the fact that she, she was able to make semis there and then quarters in Dubai, I think that's really impressive. And also she's, she's going to be top, very close to top 30 now. So yeah. Both she and Coco are getting towards, and Krejcikova for that matter, are getting sort of towards yeah. seated at Slam territory. Um, which I was and that's what big... Coco. That's what Coco said. Her main goal is to be seated at the Slams. Yeah, just getting there. Uh, you mentioned Pagula playing Doha. Let's shift to the men in Doha this week. Their final was won by actually really surprised champion Nicholas Bazalashvili, who had been awful <laughs> during the pandemic, uh, not winning matches. Um, but he won, and obviously the match that will get noticed most is his quarterfinal win, in which he saved a match point and beat Roger Federer. Roger Federer playing in his first tournament since the 2020 Australian Open, nearly 13, 14 months ago at this point. Roger coming back to tennis was a huge moment for, for the tour. There are people who are very excited to see him back. Um, a lot of interest and curiosity about how he'd play. I think overall, I think the reviews were pretty positive. Uh, for him, I think he was moving pretty well, serving pretty well. You know, still not closing out match points and not and some break points. It's pretty typical, Roger. Um, but he was very, very happy uh, with his performance and very happy in press and everything. What did you What do you make of Roger's comeback? And and what do you think? He's he's already talking about Wimbledon being a goal, which is unusual. Um, although he says he's going to play some clay because you have to play on clay to get matches, basically. But not playing Miami, which is a little bit surprising. What do you uh, What do you make of uh, of Rogers, how he looked and, and how the sets him up going forward. I think that for him, getting to play six sets in two days is quite a big ask for someone who's been out that long and who's had two procedures on his knee yeah. in the process. So I kind of understand why he's not going to Miami. I kind of understand why he's not playing Dubai uh, because it's a no-brainer to play Dubai, right? Like he has an apartment here. He, he lives here. His family's probably here. They are, I think. And uh, he's just so... These are the courts where he trains a lot as well and stuff. So the fact that he's not playing Dubai made me think, okay, for sure he's not playing Miami as well. I think he just wanted to test the waters. And who knows? Maybe He'd already pulled out of Miami even before that, actually. Like, precaution. Yeah, even before that. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I think it was a good comeback for him. I think the Dan Evans match is not an easy one, especially that he spent a lot of time with him practicing. It's kind of like a pro and a con in that way. It's kind of like Evans isn't intimidated by Roger because he's just spent several weeks training with him and stuff. And uh, it was not an easy match, but I think it's still, so there's a lot of unknowns. I don't know. I feel there's question marks because 
he's he, for him he's even saying I would have been happy losing and that's not Roger right because Roger's the kind of guy who skipped six months of tennis and then came back and won a slam in his first official tour event back right so mm-hmm. him saying I, I would have been totally fine losing just doesn't sound like him which makes me think that he's just really not sure about the knee I don't know. That's where my, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it sort of begs the question that's we'll sort of transition, I guess, a little bit into our next topic about Djokovic. But um, it's sort of interesting what Roger's motivations are for coming back, right? Like, what are his goals? I say, I say the Djokovic thing because I think most people agree, I'm guessing you agree, that uh, Djokovic is going to pass Roger's records, right? He just passed this 311 weeks at, at number one record. He seems to be on pretty good pace to pass the slam count. He's at 18, Roger's at 20, but also at 20 so if roger maybe roger thinks he can get another slam at wimbledon uh he should think that i mean why not i mean he had two championship points last time wimbledon was played but um yeah what is what are roger's motivating if he's just out there to have a good time that's nice for him um but also doesn't really seem like the roger we know who's not he's not the most openly competitive person not the most openly ambitious but still you got to be incredibly driven to to have done everything he's done in his career you know even without being openly fiery or combative or feisty or whatever sorts of more typical signifiers of competitiveness and drive we we see Federer's sort of intense focus is still very much a champion-like quality of his I also think he's also He's also a tennis geek, right? Like, did you hear yeah. him when I... You were in that press conference when I asked him about, like, how much were you following? And then he went... He spoke for five minutes about everything he followed when he was away. Yeah. And he was like, I follow all these scores and I'm looking at challenger scores and this and that. And so he is a tennis geek, right? Like, and I, I, there is no way he can see himself finishing his career just like, I was out for a year, I'm going to come back and play some lousy matches and then my career is over. I don't see him thinking that way, you know? So... Maybe the motivation is to is to finish on a good note, like just not finish this way. Uh, I also think that just he hasn't experienced the whole COVID thing at all. And maybe a lot of the decisions will also be like, where am I going to go? I'm flying without my family. You know how Roger always flies with like a million people with him, uh, his kids and, the, and, and his kids' teachers because they're homeschooled and like all of that. It's like a traveling circus. So... It's going to be different for him. I don't know how he's going to play in front of empty stands. Like he, Doha wasn't like that, but Europe is going to be probably completely empty. Yeah. So, yeah. That's why I feel like it's just, just a lot of question marks. That's one of the in- interesting things is that in all this time, uh, Federer and if you want to throw in Kyrgios and Barty still haven't played in front of like genuinely empty stadiums yet. Or I guess Barty did when the Australian Open went shut down. So maybe when it got to the mid-tournament shutdown, she made it past that point in the tournament. But other than that, they haven't entered tournaments where that isn't going to be a thing. And for Federer and Kyrgios, I guess especially, who are both such sort of crowd um, animating people in different ways, interested how they both uh, react to that and how they draw energy uh, in those empty stadiums, for sure. You'll see where he plays next. I'm guessing he would play Madrid, I guess? I wonder if he'll enter one of the smaller tournaments. He play like a you know, Munich or something? I guess I don't know. I yeah. don't know. You know, I was bizarrely. I was in Estoril when Roger lost to Montañas, which remains one of the very weird random things <laughs> that, that I have witnessed live. 
first of all, I don't usually go to Estoril. <laughs> Second of all, the day I do go to catch the Roger match, he loses to Montanius. It was a thing. I've also anyway. been to that tournament. That's one of the random tournaments that I've just showed up at once for one day when I was there for yeah. Eurovision in 2018. It was the day of like the day I showed up for the day before the Eurovision started was happened to be the, the final and Tiapo was in it. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll go. And then Joao Sosa won and became the first ever Portuguese champ at a Portuguese uh, pro tournament. And it was like a big national holiday there. And I was like, I don't know why I'm here, but it's nice to be here. But it's like random national celebration. That's funny. Speaking of celebrations, there were lots of celebrations in Serbia uh, for this commemoration of Novak Djokovic reaching most weeks at number one in the ATP singles rankings, 311, passing Federer's record of 310. This had been fairly inevitable for a while. Djokovic had been on track to do it. It wasn't exactly a surprise. He gets there. A lot of his fans, obviously, are saying it's like evidence he's the greatest of all time. Um, I do think it is a factor. And I do, I do, I, what I do like about this conversation is that it's admitting there's more than just the slam count to it, which I really appreciate. I think there is a lot more than just slam count. I think weeks number one is a totally valid uh, factor category to be looking at at this. Um, do I think it's definitively everything? I don't know. I mean, my main sort of take as these things trickle in, and I'm not exactly sure where I stand on this, but I, I think it's just becoming increasingly clear to me that it's a subjective thing. It's going to be a subjective thing for people. Like, people are still going to find their rationalizations to say, oh, no, the best of all time is whatever they want up, the, the, whatever the stats want up being. Oh, no, the best of all time is Nadal because he won, I don't know, at the end, 15 <laughs> French Opens and no one's ever going to touch that. And that's just so incredible. And what he did is beyond everything. Or people are going to say, no, no, it's Federer because of how elegantly he played the game and how beautifully he made it look and how popular he was and how much he appealed to people. That's what matters most. Um, and a lot of people will say, no, it's Djokovic because he was better than those two guys, <laughs> head-to-heads, and he won more than them in the end uh, and had tough, tough opponent, tough uh, field the whole time. He didn't get, you know, chance to win any easy sorts of grand slams over, you know, Philip Hussis or, or Puerta or Baghdadis or whatever. Yeah, what do you what do you make of, of what where the sort of goat race sits? Not a, not a topic we love talking about on, on NCR, but... With sort of goat goat race sets at, at three eleven. I I I hate the goat debate. Like I yeah. hate it. I don't believe in it. I don't know how you define greatest. There are so many ways to define it. There's yeah. so many things to factor into it. I hate it because it makes no sense to me, especially in an era like this. Uh, I think if I'm to, if I'm looking at the three eleven stat just on its own, I think it's amazing because having that kind of staying power with these kind of players at the same time is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think. I just think it just—it requires so much mental strength. Uh, it requires playing a lot throughout the year. Novak is the kind of guy who kind of doesn't have these long breaks. Not really. Like, he does have smart scheduling, but at the same time, like, he typically plays the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also not something easy, because if you think about it, like, Nadal always has this big injury that keeps him out for a few months and this and that. Like, Novak didn't have that much other than the elbow. So... Um, on its own, I think it's amazing. How much of a factor is it in the GOAT debate? Honestly, like I just said, I hate the GOAT debate. <laughs> I think that ultimately, no matter how many, if pe- like the whole world, if we're talking like just from a global perspective and fans and just random fans, if not like pundits and experts and people looking at numbers and stuff, I think in general, most people are always going to say it's going to be Roger just because he changed the game, like just the way he played and blah, blah, blah. Like, 
I think people will always think that uh, from an like an abstract perspective without numbers, without stuff like that. Uh, but you are if but also I am if you ask me when the three of them are at their peak, who's better? Who's better? I'm always going to say Novak hmm. because he is like when they're both when when the three of them are at their peak, more than likely Novak will win. Yes, Nadal did just beat him in Paris uh, in the Paris final, but that wasn't peak Novak. So that was flop yeah. Novak in that final, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's 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 a it's a massive thing. I think it's also a massive thing because Novak made it a massive thing. Novak state when you it also takes a lot of guts when a few years ago he goes out and says, "I want to get that record." You know, he didn't keep it to himself. He did, he's not someone. Like you find the other guys always saying like, oh, I'm not looking at what the others are doing. I don't really care what the others are doing. All of the stuff. Nadal says, I never want a bigger boat because my neighbor has a bigger boat. You know, that analogy he always gives. All of that, respect to all of that. But like <laughs> Novak never shies away from saying my two main goals is to get that. And he calls it the historic number one, which is the record he just broke. And he wants to have the most slams. And just going and saying that a few years ago and then getting it, that's big. Like he chased it, he got it. It's 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 just insane staying power. So yeah. I respect to that. It's speaking yeah. that kind of goal into existence it obviously is is a double edged thing because like we see obviously what's going on with Serena having this this market court number, whether it's you know fair or unfair to compare to market court uh, and all the asterisks and different eras involved there. But Serena did sort of you know embrace that as a as a target publicly. Uh, and so then it then to, it's just sort of stuck with it in some ways, as much as you know try to I try to at least absolve her of that sort of pressure. Yeah, but but Novak yeah sort of called the shot and, and then made it, and he's still not to twenty yet. I mean, there's still two Grand Slams is still a lot, and we don't know if Rafa is going to add more, if Roger could add maybe one more Wimbledon or U.S. Open or something this year. We'll uh, we'll see. Um, but it's. Uh, Definitely progress, and definitely, I think uh, one of the clearer signs that I think on a lot of the numeric fronts that Novak uh, is going to be the guy on that level to the extent that matters. One thing also is because he is so goal oriented, he already said as soon as he locked down the three eleven thing because that was already calculated a few weeks back, so we already knew that he was going to get it. He immediately said, "I'm going to stop playing." some of the smaller tournaments that I needed to play to keep that number one. I'm not obsessed with that not that goal anymore. I'm obsessed with the other one. So already, like, he's not playing Dubai when he usually plays Dubai, right? Hmm. Like, he's... he And that... So he's already planning his schedule differently so that he can peak at the slams and so that he can get that... It's interesting. Goal, he's, like, right? already sort of, like, turning off the rocket thrusters that were getting him to this one goal once he, like, hits it by one week. And there's no real danger that Federer is going to get to number one anytime soon with the kind of schedule and lack of play he has. Um, yeah, that's interesting. He's already sort of like, oh, okay, that's one up. I'm done with that part. And now let me focus on the other things. That's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. And shows what sort of um, control he has and sort of precision he has about choreo- choreographing his uh, his career and his, uh, his achievements. Mm-hmm. Any Anything else you would like to discuss, Serena? I think this was a good sort of wrap of the week that was you're going to uh dubai next week for the men's tournament there which had a um an interesting draw ceremony i believe you were telling me <laughs> the whole thing was so strange but the fu- obviously the funniest thing that happened is that stan vavrinka was at the draw 
performed the draw like he was picking names saw his name on the draw as the number seven seed and then two hours later withdrew from the tournament citing fatigue and, my, and the only explanation i can find is that that draw was so exhausting because it was there were technical issues there were names of people who were not in the draw like yaroslav pospisil instead of vashik pospisil there was like it was so it was not a good draw it was not a good situation so it kind of broke stan he's like i'm out of here that's the only explanation i can have because like and also citing fatigue but then also supposedly he's out of miami which i do not understand so yeah I've never seen this. Have you ever seen this before where the person at the draw withdraws two hours later? <laughs> so because of fatigue? No. Like if they go get hurt in practice, like, okay, but that's uh, where they're carrying an injury. But fatigue is an interesting sort of general injury. And look, I'm all for self-care. People don't feel ready to play and don't feel oh, for I have whatever. no problem with him yeah. drawing at all. It's just yeah. really funny that two hours earlier, if he had pulled out, they would have gotten the next person in, whereas... Because he's also seeded, they reshuffled the whole thing. So, like, Sonego became a seed, took his spot, has a bye. There were, there were implications, you know. Fokina then, who was supposed to play, Sonego gets a lucky loser. It's just, why? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, I don't know. But actually, the qualifying had already started. So, scratch that. No one could have gotten in from next time. But anyway, um yeah, so I'm supposed to go to Dubai. I actually was going to go last week, but then there's so many things now that make it not really worth it to be at a tennis tournament. It's actually going to be harder for me to cover the tournament when I'm there than when I'm like in my house at my desk with all my different screens, with my super fast internet, with all of that. Whereas at the tennis, kind of the media center there it isn't great. Uh, and we're not going to see the players you don't have access to coaches or anything. You don't even have access to the outside courts, which I think is problematic. Yeah, this is something I'm trying to figure out myself just because I'm itchy to get back on tour, to get back to a tournament. And the one I've been sort of targeting was Miami, which was, you know, in my pretty relatively short flight, big tournament, everybody would be there. Um, and, they're gonna, and they're allowing some media on site. But like the restrictions make it seem, I haven't decided fully that I'm not going yet, but they make it seem almost completely pointless to sort of spend yeah. the money and take the time and, and the, the sort of effort of being on site at a public event during a pandemic. I mean, because they, you will not be able to get face to face with players or coaches ever. Um, they'll even on site press conferences will happen from different locations via zoom. And then the, the thing that really got me is they wouldn't even let um, media have access to eight of the match courts, courts two through nine, basically and not another practice court too. I'm not a big practice court person, but they wouldn't even let people on practice courts, including photographers. Like they would maybe like have mm. special permission. And there's something about how the Miami outer courts, which have always been really bad about how they're designed, how they have all the seats on one side. Um, I don't know why they made them so bad again at this new location at the Hard Rock Stadium when they had a chance to totally redo it. But they got their mm. dumb uh, Crane and Park design. Yeah, there's something about that that's making it. And it's just, yeah, there's no real point. And I was thinking like, I want to go, but if I can cover, you know, it just as well from home and Miami's at least in a friendly time zone, it's the same time zone as my, me. So that's not a problem for this tournament like it would have been for Australia or Middle East or the Europe tournaments coming up. Um, and, and then separately, I know already I looked into Charleston, which is the week after that, just isn't allowing any media on site period at all. Um, 
which would have, I would have also let to go to Charleston. So I don't know. And then I, I, I guess maybe I'll go to Europe for the for Roman or Paris the next. I don't know. But it's just it's just it, it doesn't make as much as I want to be back. And I feel like I'm missing out on things like it, it just doesn't make sense really totally to be at these things. Look, I thought I was going to like immediately be on site from the first day just because I hadn't been at a tournament for a whole year. But then I, I'm, I was doing wires and doing the national. I had like a lot going on. And especially with wires, you want your setup to be great, right? And with Dubai, usually what happens is uh, in a normal year, the, they get the players walking off court immediately into the press conference room, which isn't always a good thing because sometimes they're like flustered or pissed or this or that. And, but anyway, that's what they do because the press conference room is exactly where they walk off court. Um, so literally you run down, you get your quotes, you file quickly. Like it's always like clockwork, you know, whereas now that's not the case. And I just felt like I can't do my job properly by going to the tournament, which is not what you want, right? Yeah. I'm going to have to be sitting with a mask the whole time. I'm worried to catch the virus because the virus actually is quite rampant in Dubai. Like it's not... It's, hmm. it's not insane numbers, but it's not non-existent. And so I don't want to catch the virus. I'm going to have to be like with a mask the whole time, sanitizing the entire time, this and that. The, the days are super long. There are night sessions and stuff. But again, what am I getting by being there, right? So that's why I didn't go last week. Uh, this week, for sure, I have to at least be there the last couple of days because I, I have to do radio on site from the on-site studio. So I will be there. But who knows? Maybe I'll go sooner. I'll figure that out in the next few days. But yeah, it starts yeah. tomorrow. They actually... One thing that I didn't know was that they expanded the draw. Dubai is always a 32 draw. Yeah, now it's, it's 64. A four, so it's like a 48 with buy with buys. Yeah, it's a weird sort of like a 46 because they have a couple of like performance buys too for Basel Shvili and for Ebden who made semis in, uh, in Doha. Exactly. So they have, yeah, it's a bit of a different uh, setup. So actually one of the funny uh, gifts that showed up in my mentions was uh, when I posted the draw. Someone said, all I see is, and then it's a gif of NSYNC singing bye-bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and I laugh because, like, yes, it's true. There are so many buys in that draw. There are yeah. 18 buys. <laughs> That's nuts, yeah. 46 draws is a weird, weird number. Um, but, Reem, it's always a, uh, um, a, a bittersweet to say bye-bye-bye to you after your wonderful contributions to the show. Make that our outro here. As always, folks can hopefully uh, support you on your Patreon, patreon.com slash Reem And we thank them for supporting NCR on Patreon as well. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. Uh, we want to thank our Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode who are Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kinnell, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Audrey Wellens, Antonio Maycumber, and Anna Valinder, and our GOAT backers, Mike, Nicole Copeland, Chris Bishop, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. Are you, are, so you're going back to a site, a tournament site for the first time since when? Next week? So, since, uh, since exactly a, a year and a week ago. So last time I was at a tournament was uh, the week after Dubai finished last year. I stayed in Dubai in the same venue and I covered Fed Cup Asia right. Group 1. And that finished on March 7, uh, 2020. So yeah, it's going to be a year and a week later. Are you excited? I know we talked about all the headaches of it, but like, 
Is any part of you like happy to be back at tennis? I'm going to be honest and say it looks really depressing. Like that yeah. stadium, that stadium is 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 my first experience of live tennis, live professional tennis, barring like Davis Cup in Egypt and stuff like that. Like in terms of ATP, WTA, first ever matches I ever saw live was in that in the 2010s yeah. in that stadium. And that stadium is so perfect because it's very cozy. And any seat is a good seat. And also what I love about it is that always I always know people who, like fans who are in the stands watching, whether friends or relatives and stuff like I know. So and then they were always they would always text me and say, hey, I'm here. And you can immediately see them and like make eye contact mm. with them. That's how cozy that stadium is. Yeah. And I would, I, I'm always sat in the same spot. Like they actually save a seat for me because mm. if it's too busy, the, the local PR team is very sweet. They always have a, like a seat with my name on it in the stadium. Oh. Uh, and, and it's just, it, it, the whole thing, it's like, they're like my family, everyone involved in that tournament. Every, like it's just my home. And seeing it, on TV, so empty. Like that tournament is one of the most, the most like best attended event in Dubai. I can so, and it's not always easy in the UAE to get fans to show up in the stands. Like sometimes they have really good cricket and they don't have fans. Like they have a lot of good stuff, golf and stuff. Yeah. Like, but Dubai, that tournament is very well attended. So like seeing it like that, I, it's I can't imagine. I really cannot imagine. Especially that it's surrounded by bars, the Irish village outside, and you always have a live band, and you have all these people out there drinking, and it's just such a nice atmosphere, and it's not going to be like that. So yeah. I, I think it's going to be sad. Um, but yeah, I will not scoff at the idea of actually watching live tennis. Uh, it's just I know that it's not as simple as, hey, I'm back at tennis. It's so many things at once, you know, I yeah. don't know. Bit bittersweet. Well, we will check back in with you next week. Advance, booking you in advance already for the show once again. <laughs> Thank you very much, Reem, and bye-bye-bye. Bye. -bye -bye. bye.